0: Welcome to another episode of My Journey Back, Possibly to God. Today's episode is part two of a review on the marks of a cult as listed out in a lecture by Dr. Mark Byrd from God's Bible School and College. It was such a pleasure to be joined by Nick and Janelle from the podcast Beyond the Vow as we review the marks of a cult together. Please check the show notes for a link to Nick and Janelle's podcast. In part one of this discussion, we covered New Revelation, New Revelation, false concepts of God, another Jesus, and erroneous views of humankind. I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one if you haven't done so already. Today we discuss the final four marks of a cult, and those are salvation by works, abuse of control, false prophecy, and exclusiveness. If hearing these last four marks of a cult is raising some concerns or questions for you about whether you may have been raised in a cult, then I think you'll find this discussion interesting and helpful. And as always, thank you for listening. All right, so I think as we approach the second half of this list, it's going to start really feeling, maybe not false prophecy, but the other three I think is really going to start to feel closer to home. Yeah, we may have to flesh these out pretty carefully because otherwise its it would be easy to start labeling people um, as a cult or organizations as a cult. Yeah. And, and I think there's a big difference between saying they're a cult and saying they're kind of leaning in sometimes to cultish thinking or cult cult mentality. Like, I think there's a big difference. I think, I think we need to be really careful about who we label as a cult. But I think we can talk about some of these behaviors of cults to, to just kind of help us stay within a healthy lane. Um, So yeah, as we, as we talk about these, it's going to, I think, start to feel a little closer to home. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the next one is salvation by works. And I know the CHM would, uh, again, I'm I'm mentioning the CHM just because that's our shared background. Um, But the CHM would deny salvation by works. If you were to confront them just outright. But I think sometimes in their teaching, you know, they, they teach things in a way that really sounds almost like salvation, salvation by works. You know, if we, you know, if we're looking at these other cults say like, like one is Pentecostal, for example, they hold to like this Aryan foundation with kind of a blend of modalism there. So Dr. Bird defined them as a, as a cult, mentioned them out specifically. um, And I think he's right. They, they worship a different Jesus, but because they do the right things, like, their women don't wear wear pants and right. they don't wear wedding bands and they have long hair. Un, women have long un, uncut hair. they're They're doing the right things. Therefore they're saved. It's easy to look at them and think, yeah, they're they're fellow Christians because they do the right things. They believe in a totally different Jesus. right. That's okay because they're doing the right things. Yeah, and I think I think it's real easy with some of the, the separation from the world commitments there to drift into this type of thinking.
1: Yeah. He, he mentioned if he got on the interstate and he tried to convince himself that it would take him to Chicago, but it didn't. It, it's not, and no matter how hard you try to think it's going to take you there, if it doesn't, it doesn't. And so when it comes to salvation by works, I think it, it's something that even as a Christian, you have to be careful of, and I'll I'll to give you my example, uh, which was what happened to me. My, uh, for much of my childhood, you know, I'm involved in church, and then when I uh, we go to a church in Huntington, we we're there for a long time. You end up being, you teach Sunday school, you drive the van, you're associate pastor, you're visiting the sick, you you even do funerals you you're doing all kinds of things. One of the hardest things for me is when we got married and I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I said, Portsmouth, Ohio was the dividing line. And I said, if you want me to continue to be in a serious role at my previous church, then you're going to have to have me live on the Eastern side of Portsmouth because travel would just be too much, too far. And, uh, I told the Lord, I said, if you want me to go elsewhere, I said, you're going to have to put me on the western side of Portsmouth, as silly as that sounds. Every house, we looked at how many houses on the eastern side of Portsmouth and Wheelersburg and other places. And every last one of them fell through, except for the only one that came through on the western side. And we live there now. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and uh, so I still help out at that church occasionally. Uh, we go to Nazarene Church in Franklin Furnace now. But the hardest thing for me was having to not be involved in the work that I was doing. I was used to preaching. I was used to driving the van. I was used to doing these uses. And then you're not doing it. And it's almost like I struggled with my salvation for a bit. Not like I'm going to lose it, but I felt like I wasn't worthy. I wasn't, I wasn't working hard enough. Mm. And I had to realize that I'm slipping into kind of a dangerous ground there that, it's not my works. It wasn't the amount of van routes that I drove. It, it wasn't the um, the amount of times that I preached. It wasn't the amount of people that I visited that g- gave me salvation. It was grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that gift of salvation that gave me that, well, I guess I answered my own, my own statement there. It, it gave me salvation, that, that faith. It wasn't the works. And you have to be careful because really the works, they're, they are a byproduct of the change within you. They're not going to bring about the change. They are the symptom to the change. So if you're saved, you're going to naturally want to do things for God. But there's not like you have to do this many van routes. you got to preach this many. And, and even if God puts you in a time period where you don't do anything, it's not wrong it's not a sin you're still saved but that was something that I dealt with personally because I felt like oh I'm not doing anything and it's almost like I'm flailing like what, what am I supposed to do I got to do something I'm reaching out for anything and um, I had to come to terms with that just because I wasn't doing anything at that season of time it didn't mean I'd lost my salvation. my salvation is fine regardless. Uh, but yet the willingness to do things when God prompted me to do it as whenever they come into my life, you know I feel in here and there or whatever. If I'm willing to do it, that is the byproduct of that's that change within, you know, mm-hmm. and I've known so many people that have been so obsessed with working so hard, working so hard and, and doing this and doing that. And almost like if, maybe this is enough. Maybe God will accept me if I do right. this. I, you know, I don't care what you do. You, your righteousness is a filthy rags, so the scripture says. Um, so. Anyway, I, you know, kind of a long-winded explanation of what uh, what I had to deal with. Where I kind of allowed that, the absence of it caused me to think that my salvation was now absent. But that that's not the case, you know. So I don't know. I hope I conveyed that. Yeah. Right there, but.
0: Yeah, that's really good. It's like it's like this this sense of like anxiety or paranoia. Yeah, exactly. Um, connected to the security of your relationship with God um, and and less about seeing it as maturity or where God has you right now right. Um, in your life. Um, that reminds me of, uh, I've been listening quite a bit to Dallas Willard, who's a Southern Baptist, and oddly enough, there's someone within the CHM, a very prominent leader, who if I said his name, every, everyone would, re- would recognize it. Um, but he recommended that I, that I listen to Dallas Willard and, uh, I, I hope I'm, I'm understanding Dallas Willard correctly, but the way that he defined it was there's like passive salvation, which means like, there's nothing you do in regards to your salvation. And that's what Christ does on the cross. And that it has to do with the next life, securing your eternal destiny. And then there's active salvation, which is what you do to be saved, and that has to do with being saved in this life. In other words, security versus maturity. And w- one thing that he said, which I think most, maybe maybe most Wesleyans and Methodists altogether, but I think certainly within the CHM, uh, he said, you know, if you rely entirely on passive salvation. I mean, if you just want to sit around and do nothing and have a miserable life until you die, then that's what you're going to have. Mm -hmm. And so essentially he was kind of teaching something along the lines of like security of the believer. Like, yeah, you may make it into heaven at the end, but you're, you're missing out on everything that God has to offer. Which I like what you had said earlier about if you get to the end of this life and you realize there is no afterlife, you're just gone what what the Christian life offers you now in this life would have been worth all of it anyways. And I think that's something that I'm looking for because so many times as a kid, you know, we would, uh, like the testimony we would give is, you know, I, I just want to make, make heaven my home. Everything was about making it to heaven. And that it, it created this sense of anxiety or paranoia. And whenever I start to think of my relationship with God as secure, and all of the different requirements or rules or uh, standards of the CHM even become attractive to me in a way. Like I can see where we're going with this. Like we're trying to live in a way that as God intended to 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 experience what, the best of what life has to offer in, in this life. And the more holy we can live, the more we're going to experience that. Like it, we're not trying to maintain our salvation and we're not working towards our salvation. We don't have to have paranoia or anxiety about, um, you know, I don't know if the Bible requires this. I think, I don't, I don't think I need to do this. Like, like Miller Downing was saying, uh, you know, if you grew up in a church who doesn't wear ties, you, you should just, you should always not wear a tie. Because if you start wearing a tie, then you're going to start drifting and you're going to drift further and further. Like we can let go of that paranoia and say, I think, yeah, I think God wants me to, not wear ties or you know what? I I think that's just my church saying some, some goofy things here. I feel like I I can wear a tie and suddenly like the paranoia of it and the anxiety of it's gone. And, but if something else comes along, you don't feel like you have to do this in order to be saved or whatever. It's, it's more about, I want, I want to live a holy life to experience the, the best of what life has to offer as God designed it. So, viewing it more as maturing in, in in my walk with God or maturing in in my faith versus security, it it helps eliminate all of that anxiety and paranoia and actually makes makes like rules in my life or guardrails in my life feel much more attractive to me. Yeah. I think that people
1: sometimes are worried that you know, I always used to hear, uh, you know, people would be afraid. Oh, but if I get saved, if God's going to call me to Africa, you know, or God's going to call me to some far off distant land or whatever, I'll leave my family. You know, uh, there's no guarantee God's going to do that. I think to some people, the, the greatest mission field they have right now is their family, you know, and instead of looking, you know, uh, ac- across the water to some foreign land and worrying about that, they need to look at what's going on in house. But I, I think that once you're saved, there's a joy in serving God and he knows the desire of our hearts and he gives us the desire of our hearts. And I think sometimes that desire is something that even we don't truly understand yet until he introduces it to us. And so I I never, I never in a million years dreamed that I would preach. And I remember I was leaving where I worked in in Huntington, West Virginia. It was a mining, they made equipment, uh, electrical equipment for a mining company. And I got into my car I was about to put my key in the ignition and um, I froze and I always thought God kind of inserts thoughts. This is how it works for me. But when God puts a thought in my head, it's almost like I have a normal conveyor belt of, of objects. And then, you know, something, something strange has happened because something odd comes down the conveyor belt and I froze. And the thought was, have you ever thought of preaching? And I froze and my key is literally almost in the ignition. And I'm just sitting there. And out loud, I said, uh, God, I said, me preach. And I laughed out loud. And I turned the key in the ignition address the way I drove, drove home and it started to eat at me. And it felt like there was something in my center being almost like a, not a fire, but it was some kind of a, it, it was just there and you couldn't shake it. I tried to deny it. Yeah, I'm just imagining it. And um, I remember I preached my first sermon and I was so nervous, you know, and you've you, you got all the pre-sermon jitters, you know, you have to run to the restroom Oh, maybe I forgot my notes or I've done this. And what are people? And the last thing that I remember thinking was people are going to think I'm stupid. I'm going to say something dumb. And I was in the back of the sound room and I'm getting ready to go up there and do all my thing. And all of a sudden it was like God stuck another thought in my head and said, why would I put you up there to fail? And I never had another problem preaching on the platform or in front of front of people ever again but it turned into be a joy. I love it. I, I, I absolutely love doing that, but I never knew that I would love doing it. And so I always kind of saw that as one of those things that God knew the desire of my heart. He knew my desires before I ever knew them. And so I think people sometimes worried about, oh, if I get saved, God's gonna put me to work doing this or that, you don't know that. Beyond your wildest dreams, you have no idea. And God can introduce something to you that all of a sudden it will be your passion. And you never knew it was going to be your passion. But and then, you know, it's not work at that point. It's a joy. You love it, you know. So that right there, I think, is wonderful about when you serve God is that your work becomes a joy. It becomes uh, something that you like to do and, and it becomes a passion. And, and uh, you know, I, I uh, that, that's just kind of how I see it.
0: Yeah. I know I've mentioned Kirk Thompson, uh, before, but yeah, I just, he's hes my favorite author, but that reminded me of his book, soul of desire. Um, that's kind of something that he, he touches on where like what you really want. Um, and that is, kind of gets back to where he, how he talks about how evil twists our desires mm-hmm. to make us think we want something else. Right. Um, but really it's more of just a coping coping mechanism because we are, we're afraid that the thing we really want is not there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that that's uh, that was really good. Yeah. So moving on to the where are we on six? Abusive control. <clears throat> so I think the rigid standards, rigid. I don't know. Maybe that's the right word. But some of the standards of the CHM, I think some would maybe look at as abusive control, and and maybe some other thing. You had a, a guest recently on your on your podcast, and he was, was saying something to, about. I was
1: going to bring that up because I yeah mention it here. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> You know, you. it really floors you sometimes some of the things that you hear. And when I was going down through and I was writing these things down as Mark Bird's going through them, when I got to abusive control, I was like, oh boy, <laughs> this one kind of, because I'm like any of these, you could say, well, this particular church doesn't fit that. It doesn't fit that. And you get the five, then you get the six and you go, oh, it's a perfect fit. <laughs> you know, but in his situation, he grew up in a, uh, if I get it all correct, I believe he said it was an independent free will Pentecostal holiness church. And, um, I think he said James Plank preached there some, some didn't he? Yes. He said he preached there like five or six times a year. And it was because his cousin was the pastor at this church. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so through that connection is where they knew everything about the IHC camp Gilead victory trio and, and and everything CHM related. But He got into the pastor and he said, it was decided that because it was considered excessive living, that it was decided you could not own a house that was purchased for more than $85,000. You had to ask for permission to go to a revival anywhere else. And and his his family asked for permission. So I guess there was his family and then he had other family that went to another church and the other family was having a um, revival, so his immediate family asked the pastor, "Hey, can we go to this church and go to the revival?" And they were denied. Blew my mind because to me, that totally just seems to sit in with abusive control. And and, I, and so and and there was a very telling moment that we had in our exchange. I said. Did this guy, did he ever preach it to the churches? No, he didn't hold revivals. He preached right there at that place and sounded like James Plank was the only person that he really had come in. And he said, if, the, he, if that pastor would have allowed us to go elsewhere, it would have raised a lot of concerns and there would have been very few answers, If if I can remember exactly what he said. And so I think that this pastor, in order to maintain his control, he had to limit the flow of information. And obviously if it's your relative and I do not want this to come back on James Plank, but I do feel that if it's your relative and you kind of get a feel for what's going on at a certain church, maybe he knew. And even my friend uh, Daniel kind of the way he put it, it was like, well, he, he only covered certain things like, Oh, how you should live. And so I, I don't know if it was just, you had to be careful, you know, and maybe James Plank even knew he had to be careful in a place like that. But, you know, I don't know exactly what your thoughts would be on this. Maybe you're in agreement with me on that. I- I'm not sure. But to me, that abuse of control, if that's one of the eight elements, I don't know how many of these you have to, well, yeah, any one of these can disqualify you and make you a cult. But that one for abusive control seems to fit this particular church. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, saying like how much you can spend on your house, or who who you can, uh, you know, what other revivals you can go to—that's that uh-huh. just seems seems bizarre to me. And we've mentioned James Plank, and I, I I wouldn't want to say that that the position of that church represents Jim Plank in any way. Sounds like they were family. That would probably explain why he was there, and it sounds like when he was there. He just kind of didn't touch on some of those things. And I don't, I guess I don't see an issue with that. Um, I would yeah, think he probably had to be careful, Yeah, you know, because
1: you're, you're not sure. And I mean, we all have you know, people always people always laugh and they're like, everybody has that crazy uncle, you know, or, or, or whatever thing could be present in, in your family. And I don't know if that was just one of the, and who knows, maybe, maybe James Plank felt like maybe something he would say could kind of help some of these people. If he had an opportunity to mm-hmm. preach there, you know, I, I don't know, but he did say one of the, one of the strange things, he said, He this pastor had no issue with them going to the IHC. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I said, well, I nowadays you don't hear as much of a radical rhetoric coming out of the IHC. Uh, but, you know, even up 15 years ago, there were still smatterings of that. And I remember like my mother told me, she said, uh, there was a man that they knew who used to sit there at the, at the entrance to the IHC. And he would literally watch the legs of the women who went by and any of them that had a seam in the back of their hose or did not, I forget which was which um, he kept a count. And then he wrote in his article about how horrible it was at that. So, I mean, uh, he's, he's dead and gone now, but you know, there's, Elements that existed and obviously were preached and written on that were radical. And so who knows, maybe because some of that still existed back then, that's why this pastor allowed his church to go there. Um, I mean, obviously now I don't think that would necessarily be the case because, you know, people generally are looking, there seems to be more of a middle of the road tone that is especially out of the Bible Methodists. Mm -hmm. Um, so.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of the, um, so, so in the in the most recent episode I did asking if the chM is a cult I would say on paper no no they're not a cult but I think they have drifted into this cult mentality kind of cultish thinking and I would say that was pretty strong back in the 80s 70s 80s 90s um but yeah I think it's it's starting to become more balanced and and I think I think the church can hold the chM can hold to its distinctives mm-hmm. it's its standards in a, in a non- cult in a non-cultish way, I think whenever we start to say, Hey, you know, the oneness Pentecostals, like, yeah, we agree on who God is, but they, they all wear skirts, no wedding bands. So we're all, we're all good. We're, we're family here. We're Christians. Right. But, but the, the Westlands are Methodists down the road who, you know, they wear wedding bands up on the pulpit, like, man, they're, they're kind of borderline, probably not even Christian. Yep. Like, yeah, you know, that's like, and and I think that was pretty, pretty, um, I think a lot of people were saying that back in the eighties and nineties. I think some people still today are saying that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, But I think for the most part, like you said, they're becoming more, more balanced. But yeah, I think, I think a church can not have rules. I, I think they need to be thoughtful about those because like, I, I do think, you know, some people have presented their reasoning on why they don't wear wedding bands. And I think, I, I think their logic and their reasoning is good. I think it is founded on biblical principles not that I think the Bible condemns wedding bands at all, but that, uh, I, I, can see how it's a, it's a principle that that's how you're choosing to apply it to your right. life. I, I think that makes sense. And like, I can understand, I think the reasonings why they would want to make that, um, like a membership rule or at least a platform rule, rule, but I think you need to be careful about doing that because you're going to start excluding some really good people from, from even leadership positions. Who, I mean, they're so closely aligned with you, conservatively. There's just one or two little things here and there that they would they would feel is too too intrusive or too controlling that they don't really. Yeah, yeah. So I think I don't think I don't think the rules of the of the CHM or the standards get them into the category here of abusive control, is what I'm trying to say by that.
1: Was it you that said? Uh... I thought it was you in your, in your podcast on that, when you were talking about it, they're not a cult, but some of them have been cult adjacent. Was that, did you? Yeah,
0: yeah, I said something like that. I I think, I um, think that's
1: good. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because like any of these things,
1: like I'm going through, I'm like, yeah, that's not really, uh, a lot of the CHM churches, like you can't really, you can't call them a cult. But I think there are some where those in leadership with just their control, that's where we really start to see some of those characteristics show themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're on to our last two. And I see that Janelle's joined us. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. welcome. I muted you. Here, let me unmute you. There you go. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Thank you. you Now you're good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Janelle and I go way back. We went to school together at Pilgrim Holiness Academy. Muncie, Indiana.
2: Did you ever foresee a time where you'd be sitting across the Zoom? <laughs> no,
0: <laughs> no. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. Uh, mm-hmm. Jump in uh, whenever you feel like you have something you want to say here. Um, yeah, so the next one, number seven here, I so it's false prophecy. And our pastor got into prophecy a little bit. But I don't really, I don't really, I don't really think I was exposed to too much prophecy within the CHM, and I don't remember too many people buying into some of the, some of the prophecies that we heard in the news about the return of, of Jesus or the end of the world or whatever. Yeah.
1: You do you remember? Uh, was it twenty seventeen um, when there was this whole thing with the uh, the, the the sign in the heavens? And um, it was the woman who was in travail and was about ready to give birth. It's and just last year. Well, well, that, that, there was that. But then we also had um, that take place in 2017. This is
2: so far out of the loop of what I ever, because I don't do, I'm like you, I didn't do prophecy. Like it was not.
1: <laughs> It, it had yeah. kicked off around 2017 and everyone was so there were people who were so because there was a it was really centered around a bunch of people on YouTube um, who were making a lot of different videos about how they said the, the, the return of Christ was imminent. It was about ready to happen. And I went to church well, before I went to church found the local uh, newspaper from the Herald dispatch in Huntington, West Virginia. And one of the apostolic churches, I believe it was had taken an entire full page and had Uh, like taking the whole page and we're talking about the signs and the stars and how this coming such and such September 17th or whatever it was, God is returning. And uh, I remember I went in there and I held it up and and I, I showed the congregation. I said, folks, I said, this is not correct. And I said, if, if Jesus does, if Jesus does return, I said, it's pure coincidence that's this day, you know, (laughs) but we were discussing, here we are how many years later and we're still here, you know? and, And, uh, and we've had several of these kind of false prophecies, if you will, uh, you know, and everybody's always, we had another one of those that kicked off here back in what, September again, and something like that. And people were talking about the, the it was something similar. Oh, well, we got the September 17th, 2017 sign wrong. Uh, it's, it's actually, we've adjusted it now. It's the 21st, but it it's, became
2: October. Then
1: it's 2023. And it just kind of, and I feel that a lot of people kind of make themselves, they keep themselves relevant by having things like this to talk about, uh, especially on YouTube, like I said earlier, YouTube and technology has made this kind of thing so easy to propagate and just fly out there. But I I feel that you have just, uh, you know, and everybody's going to have a different take on whether you're pre-tribulation, mid-trib, post-trib, and, and all these different things like that. But I think that the, the honest answer to everything is just be ready, you know, no matter Mm -hmm. what happens, just be ready. And this is honestly one thing that always used to concern me. Maybe this will alleviate somebody out there listening. I always used to be concerned. I thought, but what if it's not pre-trib? What if it is mid-trib? And what if we are persecuted? What if I have to lose my head? What I don't want to get the mark? What if I have to die? There's something interesting, and I believe it's in Revelation. And I can't quote, it's I know I think it's the first three or four chapters, but it talks about the saints who are persecuted and it says they love not their life unto the death. And I was praying one day and I was told, told God, I said, like, God, I feel like I'm a coward. Like I, I would definitely, I would not turn my back on you, but man, I'm going to be scared to death. You know, when it comes to my life being taken from me, like I, I'm not going to be the most bravest of people, you know, when I, whatever happens. But from what I read there, it seems to be something overcomes these people to where they're not afraid anymore. They they're not scared. They don't care. They are sticking by the truth. And it says they love not their life unto the death, like there's a supernatural presence that all of a sudden encompasses them and gives them this courage that is not of them. And they go up and they say what they have to say and they do what they have to do. They make their stand and they and they die. And, um, you know, regardless of what happens myself, I lean for, I lean and hope for a pre-tribulation event. That's just me. That's, that's just me. That's one of those, I guess you could say, that would be more of a secondary layer, you know uh, but I'm not going to dump fellowship with somebody who is a mid-trib or a post-trib or anything like that. Yeah. At some point we're all going to end up the same place, you know, but yeah I, I think that that people can get wrapped up in false prophecies and allow that even to be points of breaking fellowship with other people
2: and we're never going to figure it out. no
1: we're not <laughs> That's
2: not even Gabriel knows
1: who? Gabriel, is that right there? I don't even think about that. I was like, like, who is that? He loves the
2: trumpet, but he doesn't. I
1: don't know who that is. It caught me completely (laughs) off guard.
0: Oh, that's funny. Uh, Do you guys remember the one about uh, something about the Mayan calendar? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, It ran
2: out in what was that? 20 Uh. 20? 2012. Yeah, it out?
1: Uh, Yeah, and then Nostradamus have something that he was I mean, saying as he well. just
2: Ran out of stone. They he, killed each other before they got anywhere yeah, else. I think
1: yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but they didn't get to finish the counter because they killed each other.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the CHM really falls into that category too much. I know those things yeah. came along and and everyone kind of got paranoid for a week or two until it was gone and then they we're like, okay, well, I guess we're mm-hmm. good. Yep. <laughs> Yep.
2: So I, uh, I'm gonna live the way I should live. Yeah. Uh, and then uh-huh. I'll be ready. I'm not gonna yeah. focus on
0: yeah, things I, that make me anxious. Yeah, yeah. That's like um I don't know, I got a few thoughts going on in my head. Like it kind of gets to kind of the level of anxiety and paranoia. Um, like am I am I am I ready? Am I secure in my relationship? Mm-hmm. Um and it also reminds me of it's not not really along the lines of what you were talking there, but it, it, what you were saying reminded me of a of a sermon that Holy Joys recently posted by David Fry, And it was the first sermon in a series on heaven and hell. And the, the title of his first sermon there was A Heaven Can Wait Attitude. And we all kind of have that mentality of whatever that country song was, like, I want to go to heaven. I just don't want to go right now, you know? Mm-hmm. And he was saying, like, if you could understand... What heaven was then then you could get past that and really hope that you know heaven would come now yeah. and he kind of talked about how you know we have these ideas of heaven as being you know golden streets and pearly gates and you know just sitting there saying holy 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 all the time and he's like that just doesn't sound appealing to me at all like some people you know like give me a fishing pole set me by the river I hope that's what heaven's like. Uh, one one of the ways that he kind of described heaven was, it's going to be something more along those lines. Like whatever you enjoy, like these are good things that God created us for us to enjoy. And that's something that he's going to provide for us in heaven to enjoy. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then one a phrase that he said in that sermon, this doesn't apply to anything here, but uh, one phrase that he said was something along the lines of, fear will never inspire a pursuit of heaven or something like that it's Mm -hmm. only the joy of heaven that that motivates us yeah well
2: that's where that fear came from you and i both sat in chapel services where that was
0: mm -hmm.
2: it was such you never felt like you were good enough you never felt like you were saved enough let's put it that way you never felt like you were saved enough my dad was not that kind of preacher so i didn't have that continual exposure but we both sat in chapel services as teenagers and had three and four hour chapel services where that was crammed down our throat where you just went down and prayed and a sermon started again and Mm -hmm. you were convinced that you were backslidden in that two minutes Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep
2: so rapture anxiety is a real thing and i think it wasn't created by god and i think it's something that he understands because of the flawed nature of people who are pushing that down your throat, that you're not yep. enough. That it, you'll never be enough.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the last one, um, exclusiveness, I mean, right off the bat without, without talking about what Dr. Bird, how, how Dr. Bird describes this, like, I feel like the CHM is pretty exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, like I've said, I don't think the I wouldn't say the CHM is a cult, but uh, there's uh, I feel like they're they're pretty exclusive, and I think if they make their distinctives requirements for salvation, like that's where I think you drift into cultish thinking. Right. Um, whereas saying like, yeah, we want you to follow these rules to be a member. Yeah, that is kind of exclusive, but I don't think that's like cult level, ex- exclusive.
1: Yeah, I think how Dr. Bird it, he said, when you allow the secondary issues to begin to push out or even uh, take dominance over the primary, Mm -hmm. that's where you really start to have a problem. If people are willing to, you know, uh, say you're not saved because, you know, for example, like guest that I had on when he said that he was told that if he owned a cell phone, he would go to hell you know it's like okay that's a secondary doctrine but yet you're taking that and raising it to the top and saying that event you own that digital device you will go to hell for it that's that's overstepping some boundaries there mm-hmm. and and of course that makes every that makes a very exclusive bunch you know because all of a sudden you have a very technologically inept group that is uh very isolated because of these secondary teachings that have taken dominance. And, um, you know, sadly, eventually those things eventually die out. And a lot of times I've seen their family run churches and it becomes us four no more. And eventually they cease to exist. And that church you told us about in that interview, it's, it's no longer in existence um, and, and probably for the good, you know, because of what it was doing. But yeah, exclusive exclusiveness is definitely something that I think that exists. Um, and I think that uh, that has even hurt the witness of the CHM in some examples. I think there are churches in the CHM that are very, um, they're very outreach oriented. They want people to get saved. They don't care what you look like, what you dress like, what you smell like. They just want to get you in that pew and hear the gospel. Um, But then there are some people it's like, you've got to meet certain prerequisites before you even come in the door.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, anyway.
0: Yeah. And I, I actually have heard James Plank say things along those lines, like, there's people all caught up, and you know people aren't lining up quick enough. You know what people who've who've come in and and gotten saved, you know they they don't feel like they're they're lining up like they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, he was cautioning people like don't get caught up in that. Um, but then at the same time, he was saying like if you've progressed to a certain point and then come to a different understanding and th- that you're backslidden, he he kind of. Kind of got caught up in that himself, which is why I think his apology is very meaningful, especially the part in there where he emphasized, like, I d- I do believe that you're saved by grace through faith, not 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 by doing or, or not doing these certain things. Um, and I think he's he's preached several times on direction, and I think that's like I think that's a really good thought. But whenever we're saying the the standards that we have set up in our church, like this is like the 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 full light or the the right the uh, you know if you disagree on any of these or if you were raised in this and, and come to think different that you've you've gone in a direction away from god i don't know if that's i don't know what i think about that i, I would say that that's not the case but I, I do agree with the idea that he's he's trying to emphasize there
1: yeah you have to be careful I, i've heard that about the, you know, going in a certain direction. And sometimes, oh, I understand people can be saved and, and they're walking in the light they have, but where where people get caught up is they want to make sure that while you're walking in that light, you're walking in their direction. So they're, you know, oh, well, you're ignorant now, but just as long as down the road, you get to my point, you get to where where I see you as acceptable in my congregation. You know, I heard him talk one time, he, he was, um, this may have been the same sermon, I'm not sure, but uh, he was preaching. Uh, And talking about uh, a couple in his church and he said they got saved. He said, and you know what, like almost like they were rough around the edges. And he said, you expect that people over a couple year period, you can look and, okay, this is where they started. This is where they are now. And he said, these people just, they're just still in the same spot. And he kind of like, almost like he kind of humored them a little bit. Like they're just who they are and they're just going to be that way. And, and, And I wish I knew more context for why they were that way or why he saw them as such you know, uh, because once again, I hope that's not one of those things where, okay, you're saved now, start start muddling along in in my direction and getting to my point. And maybe these people are walking in the light that God has given them, and that light is not his light. And maybe it's a completely something that is okay by God, but it's something that maybe isn't necessarily acceptable to what they would see as being, I guess it, it wouldn't be acceptable in their church, maybe. You know, maybe these people are okay with a wedding ring. Maybe they're okay with um, short sleeve shirts or, or whatever the case may be. But I, I think that that is something that we can get caught up in if we're not careful, is a feeling like people have to go in our direction. You know, as Even if they're walking in the light, as long as they are walking in their light in our direction, and we hope they get to that point. Um, I think we have to be careful of that because God has a destination unique for all of us. Um, and we're all going to have, you know, different ideas about things or what else, but, but, uh, we, we do have to listen to what the Holy spirit says to us.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's fine for a church to say, you know, this group of people here are kind of all of the same mind that this is the right understanding of scripture. And this is the most correct way. As long as you leave that caveat open of what we recognize, these are secondary issues and someone else might have a different understanding yeah. I mean, Wesleyanism versus Calvinism, like that's huge, yeah. you know, but, and, and so like, you're not going to have a church saying like, well, we shouldn't teach Wesleyanism. Like, no, of course you're going to teach Wesleyanism. You know, you're going to teach against the doctrine of election or something, or if you're Calvinist, the op- the opposite way, you know, like you're going to have those teachings. And so then if you believe that, you know, Christians shouldn't wear, wear jewelry or something like that, like you're you're probably going to talk about that and teach that and say like, you know, we feel like this is God's direction, but if you're, as long as you keep those in the right priority saying, these are, these are secondary issues, not that they're of secondary. uh, How should I phrase it? Not that they're not important, you know, but understanding that there's difference of of opinions. And as long as we're all holding to the same core doctrine. uh, Yeah. yeah, We think the Calvinists are wrong. We want to say, we think the Calvinists are very wrong or the Catholics are very wrong or what, and you know, and they're saying the same thing about Wesleyan and Wesleyans, but to say, we still embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ because we agree on the core doctrine, which is why if you fall out of outside of that, why they would say, even if you align on all the secondary tertiary issues, you're not holding to the core doctrine. Therefore, as much as I love like the lifestyle you're living, I can't embrace you as part of the body of Christ. Yeah. I
1: remember when the asbury revival kicked off um there was actually a sermon that james plank preached and there there was i don't know how widespread it was but there was some people that were kind of like i think they were more or less confused as to why there would be such a revival taking place there and yet here we are the conservative holiness movement where's where's the great revival here you know where and he was preaching and he said you know here we are. He said, look at us. He said, we've got pews that are empty. He said, we can't even come to church, you know, for two services or, or three services. He said, it's hard to do that. And he, he uh, chastisement would be a very strong way of putting it. I don't think it was necessarily that, but he did kind of come down on the, in his sermon on the congregation, like here, you're having trouble coming to church when you, when you should, or doing this or doing that, you know, why should we, um, you know, be upset if there is something kicking off at Asbury, or thinking that necessarily maybe we have some exclusiveness to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, now those are my words, kind of Cliff Notes version of kind of what he was preaching. But um, I think that did kind of um, disturb some people to see, and, and of course, people, well, you know, they're not really uh, what they claim to be, or well, we'll we'll see where they are in three weeks. You know, mm-hmm. you heard rumblings of that, but it's like, what if that is God? And then you hear about the. Uh, Auburn revival and all these other things, people getting baptized and people rejecting uh their smoking habits and, and sex and all these other different things. And it's like, if that's not of God, then what is it? Because mm-hmm. I tell I tell you, that certainly doesn't sound like Satan's like Satan's MO. That's not what he wants. You know, he's all about confusion and death and destruction and, and perversion. Uh he's not about people cleaning up their act um and, and trying to follow God. So um I think that was something interesting because it kind of showed that to some people that it's like, you know, the body of Christ is, is actually much larger um, mm-hmm. than than the conservative holiness movement. And and you even look at, we've seen some of those video clips. Um, it was some of the, uh, maybe from the Oneness Apostolic, or it was the United Pentecostal, and here they are, they're preaching. And that one guy was going down the line, and he was saying, I don't want to be a, a dead and dry uh, Methodist or holiness, godless holiness, is how he put it. And uh, he was listening, and I thought, they see the holiness people, as lost. And it's just so shocking to listen to it from that perspective. So yeah, an exclusiveness, I think that does exist. I don't think necessarily to occultic practices, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it does exist. And so some people kind of feel like they have God, they have a curb on God, that they have an exclusiveness to God. He can be found here, the holiness way, Uh, you know, he's he's right here. Uh, But then all of a sudden God shows up someplace else and he's over there at a, at a college, and he's in a Baptist church. Um, you know, he's he's down the road at a Nazarene church. And it's like, really? And um, I think that has kind of, comp- even maybe a separate topic, but it's caused a little bit of angst, because if God can be over there, then you could be over there too. Then all of a sudden, you start to lose people from your corner, you know, because maybe they want to go find God over there. Um, so anyway, I, I think that yeah, exclusiveness is definitely something that does play a part um,
0: in people in people's way of thinking. Yeah, it's like how can God be over there moving because we're the ones with the glory? Yeah, we're the exactly. ones with God's presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, I like why can't we say? This reminds me of of Eric Heimlich. He he went down to the Asbury revival and and posted about it. And like, why can't we say? Wow, look, God's moving in the church right. Let's go glean from that and be a part of it instead of being like, "Wait a minute like they don't have the glory. How in the world is it happening Well like yeah, just just recognize it as God is moving in your right. like your church it is right. the the church, yeah,
1: yeah it's a the church is much larger than we think and the the holiness movement i believe doesn't quite grasp necessarily how big god's church is either or how big the body of christ is Um, and i think that's another thing that exclusiveness has kind of hurt it in some areas because it doesn't necessarily fellowship with the uh rest of the body of christ because i think i i think that in many ways some of the secondary doctrines have given them cause to refrain from fellowship with them Mm -hmm. which is sad
0: yeah it reminds me of um i read through the book uh, it's called the call essays to the conservative holiness movement and in there larry smith said something along the lines of holiness is what the chm churches are humbly offering to others while we should be humbly receiving what they have to offer to us like that was just such such a beautiful statement i think
1: yeah it it was i remember you uh, mentioning that i haven't read that book but i remember you quoting that and that was so strong and um i think some people would probably be appalled to think that they could get anything from the the rest of, of of the christian church we should have all the answers we have the light they should be coming to us um you know and at best they're walking in what little light they have while we have all the light here we, we know what's going on we're in the know and and i think that we can learn as much and there's so many things we could borrow or not just borrow but take and learn from in that shared fellowship and you know we were discussing the other day about one of the areas i don't want to get on a tangent but one of the areas where i felt personally that the holiness church uh not all of them but a lot of them has kind of failed at is that kind of uh, outreach slash benevolence, you know, and and there's other churches that are not holiness that are just so outreach oriented, so uh, loving and caring and just anticipating the need, it, at least in my personal experience, some of the more uh, hardcore holiness churches that I've had, uh, you know, association with or whatever, just kind of, they didn't get that concept. And our guest and mentioned something very similar taking place at his church when he was growing up but mm-hmm. anyway uh yeah it's a i think Larry Smith really hit the nail on the head with that one
0: yeah it was a really good really good line there yeah um the another aspect of exclusiveness that dr bird mentions is uh like like shunning those who have left yeah and i feel like emotionally i think a lot of people might think Oh well, that's definitely the CHM because we felt when we left like we weren't considered Christian, and like those are real, like real emotions. But I think a lot of it is associated just with like loss of community. Yeah. Like that's that's heavy, and I think sometimes that that gets pushed on uh, pushed on the church in 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 the wrong way, perhaps, where like if you if you come to believe differently and you feel like you know we we would maybe rather attend a different church that can all be great and healthy. You're still going to feel the weight of that loss of community. So that's just going to happen. But I I do think there is somewhat of an element of, you know, the CHM thinking that, you know, if you leave our churches, you are backslidden or you are no longer Christian. Um, Kind of reminds me of of what Plank had said and apologized for. But I, even though that happens, like that, that definitely happens. um, There's like a suspicion of those who leave a suspicion of their relationship with God. But what, what Dr. Bird was talking about was much more of like an official position of the church, like a mandate. Like if your family, you know, if your child leaves the church, you can no longer even see them. Don't let them into your house. Don't go to their house. Stop associating with them altogether. Like the CHM, I don't think comes anywhere close to that type of, of exclusiveness there.
1: Something i had heard on a past uh, hillbilly broadcast episode, they were discussing about, you know, before the age of technology, social media, Facebook, they had talked about, you know, you'd always hear in sermons preached and we knew the such and such a person. And now they, and they'll give a scenario of how they used to walk in the light. And now they're just as far away as they could get. He said, but nowadays you look on their Facebook and you realize that's not the case. They're Christians. They're doing wonderful. But back then it was easier to paint those people as such horrible things uh, maybe they just didn't agree on some of the secondary teachings or secondary doctrines, and they're at a Nazarene church or wherever, and they're doing great. They're in their walk with God, but yet they've been painted as just these awful, terrible people. Uh, but now it's possibly harder to get away with that because you go over to their Facebook profile and you're like, well, that's not the case. They're doing great. They're involved in their church and, and whatever different things. And uh, But uh, yeah, that was something I I, I, uh, I remember hearing, and uh, yeah, it just it just kind of struck me funny.
0: Yeah, well, that uh, concludes the list there. I think going through this list has helped me identify like, well, let me back up and say that, you know, my my intention here is, you know, we, we talk a lot about the CHM because it's our shared background, but my hope for the CHM is that these types of conversations would steer them into, not away from their standards or anything like that, Not not really to change who they've always been but to steer them into a more balanced position or more balanced um, understanding of core doctrine. Right. And that the distinctives of the CHM fall into secondary and tertiary doctrine. Like don't, don't align with uh, one of these other groups because they all look like you whenever they deny the Trinity or deny they, they have such radical radically different views of Jesus. Like you, you shouldn't be fellowshipping with them as fellow believers or you should be considering them fellow Christians, but then you should be embracing some of these other groups who might disagree with you on secondary or tertiary doctrine. You can still embrace them as, as the body of Christ. Right. And I think what this is helping me to understand on a, on a more personal level is that my, like, like I have this, like when I think of God, it's this very anxious, panicky, I'm never good enough type of feeling. Like God sort of is this dark f- creature that just like rises out of the shadows and looks down on me in, in such disappointment. Like God doesn't feel like he's calling me into relationship. And I think these types of conversations is helping me realize that that, I mean, I guess I understand this intellectually, but to feel it in my heart emotionally, that that's a false image of God. That's mm-hmm. the wrong perception of God. And it's helping me to like, like if that's, if that's who God is, like there's something in me that just wants to run away from it. I don't want anything to do with that. But if I can feel as if, you know, God, God is safe. Like God, God does want relationship with me. It, it, it helps me to open up to whatever the real image of God is, or whatever the real perception of God is. I'm not quite sure what that is yet. But just talking through these types of things helps me to feel more open to that and leaning in more to that, I think.
1: You know, religious trauma and abusive leadership can distort the image of God. And people in leadership, pastors, not just the CHM, but churches everywhere, are going to have a lot to answer for one day because they took their call and in some cases used it and weaponized it and manipulated and and, and hurt and distorted and destroyed. And it's for that reason that we have people who, who is God you know, he like you put it really well. I think that's a idea that a lot of people have. God is this looming shadowy figure. We changed up the picture on our podcast for the episode where we interviewed Daniel, and it's got this little boy, and he's looking into this doorway that looks like a large older church, and there's a cross above the door, but the entranceway is black, almost symbolizing the an uncertainty what here's this little vulnerable person and what's he going to get when he goes in there is it going to be love is it going to be destruction and sadly we have so many cases of that where people have been abused uh, through whatever was taught from the the platform and, and and hurt and to try to deny that that has happened is a mistake. Um, and some have done that. And to belittle people who raise uh, issue with it is a mistake. And um, and it's not just the CHM. You know, it's everywhere where this kind of thing has happened. And um, I think this is very much brought about that false image of who God is. When God is loving He's uh, ready to wrap us up, to bring us in, to heal us, to help us, to to talk to us. Um, three years ago, I came home. I was kind of going through this process where I was thinking about some of the things I remember. And I remember I sat down and looked at Janelle, and she could tell you. I, I looked at her. And I said, "I don't know who Jesus is. I, I don't know who him for. I don't know him for who he really is." Is what I said. And I had started to look at things that I had heard and and what I had had been taught, and I started to analyze them by scripture. And from that point on, there was a doorway that opened, not to one where I fell down the slippery slope of moral decay or I fell away, but my relationship since that point with God has never been better. My prayer life has never been better. And I feel like I have grown into that. And I like how you say you lean in sometimes there's a question mark. If I lean in, am I lean in, Am I going to get hurt again? Am I going to get hit over the head? Am I going to get condemned? And shame on the people who have done that from the platform. Well, and- I
2: also think that sometimes that um, t- the view of a heavenly father, when we look at our pastors as father figures, and sometimes even some people may have an actual father who has provided trauma for them. Sometimes that plays a huge part in how we see
1: yeah.
2: our heavenly father.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's just, it just so happens that he gets associated with that. With
2: that. And then you don't feel safe with him because,
0: yeah.
2: or you struggle to feel safe with him because you didn't feel safe with, you know, those father figures that were in your life. And I think a lot of people struggle with that.
0: Yeah. 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 I was listening to an episode by, um, hope beyond hope, hope for the journey. I think it's called. Mark Craven's does it. Um, yeah. yeah, hope, hope along the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and he interviewed a pastor who, um, was talking about his his dad, and there were some real real issues there with his his father. But his father wasn't a Christian, and so Mark asked him. He said, "In in your walk with the Lord, like what, you know, thinking of your father, and and his mistakes, like what what kind of father." you know, do you want to be, or what kind of changes do you, have you tried to make? And he said, you know, I just think of my father and whoever he was, like, I try to be the exact opposite. Mm. Um, And so I think, yeah, I think, you know, if your father is not a Christian, that father wound can make God feel very loving. Um, But I think, like you said, when you associate your Christian father, like if, if there's harm there and there's mistakes there that have been made, it's real easy for us to associate our Christian fathers with God and that father wound can drive us away from, from God. And I feel like maybe, and I feel like maybe that's somewhat of what happened in my case, but then I think that developed into some, some real, some real doubt that I'm now struggling to recover from as well. I, I, I like to think of myself these days as as a hopeful Christian or as a hopeful theist. Like I hope I hope God is there. and I hope that I'm on this journey, not because I'm out here lost, just blindly stumbling around, but you know, I'm asking these questions hopefully because God's out there calling me. and this is my response. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully I find that God someday or he finds me. Well. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Um, this has been a really great discussion, and I want to wrap up by saying what I've been trying to emphasize all along. Definitely don't want to be tearing down the CHM, and we mentioned the CHM specifically just because that's our shared background. That's my personal background, um, and if anything, we hope that, or I, I hope that, you know, people can can learn from these conversations, and you know, not change who they are. Um, I hope the CHM, I've said it for a long time, I hope the CHM um, never changes in regards to their standards. I'm, I'm rooting for them, but I, th- I hope that they have a more balanced understanding of their of their beliefs. That's kind of my, my goal with mentioning the CHM. But yeah, thank you guys so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure.